Well, we're going to continue in the book of Jonah. We're going to be covering some ground today because um, we're going to be looking at verses 3 all the way to 16, basically the whole chapter, um, first chapter of Jonah. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. My grandma didn't drive too much, and uh, she actually preferred to just stay home, and she didn't have any feel any need to go out into the world, and she just watched the world come to her through her living room window. She would sit in her armchair and smoke, and <laughs> and then she'd tell us all the stories about the things she saw in the neighborhood. Um, and she once told me about a time when my father had decided he was going to run away from home. And so she played into it, and she made him lunch, and she said, I'm really going to miss you, you know. And then she helped him pack his bags and sent him off on his way. And she watched him walk from the front door across the street to the neighbor's house and knock on the door and ask if he could spend the night. (laughs) So my question to you is can a Christian run away from God? Can a Christian run away from God? Jonah had decided that he was going to run away from God. And he was going not to his neighbor's house, but he was going on a long, long journey. He was getting as far away as possible. But if a person has been truly born again and a child of the family of God, God is always watching over that person. And God, though you might get away for a, for a season in time and walk away from the Lord, God will always bring you back in. So we're tempted in context to think of Jonah as fleeing from these terrible Ninevites. And last time, if you remember, I talked about how horrific these people were. Um, you could compare them to modern-day Hamas just terrorists, brutal people. And we understand why Jonah wanted to get away from them. But there's a more significant point that the author of Jonah wants us to see in the book of Jonah, who the author also happens to be Jonah himself. So this is self-reflective. He's speaking about these things in the third person. And if you notice in verse 3, arose to flee to Tarshish from the Ninevites? No, he rose to flee from Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And it's repeated again in verse 3. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish and so he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And then later on in verse 10 we see this again. The men, meaning the people on the boat, the ship where Jonah was aboard, they were exceedingly afraid and they said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them (laughs) that's what he was doing. So Jonah wants us to understand this main point, that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Which begs the question, what does it mean to escape from God's presence? Can you escape from God's presence? Well, 
I think we're going to need to qualify things here. What do we mean by escaping from the presence of the of Lord? First, there's there's one kind of presence of the Lord which is His absolute presence. His what we call omnipresence. His existence in all places at all times fully. Um, you can't escape this presence of the Lord. God is out in the ocean. He's up in the sky. He's on the earth. He's out in outer space. He's in the third, fourth, fifth, twentieth dimension, whatever happened. I don't know how many dimensions. But God is omnipresent, fully present everywhere. We're not talking about that. There's no way that you can escape God. In fact, in the the psalm that we read, 139, it said that even in Sheol, even in hell, God is present there. You can't escape God. You can't escape His watchful eye. You know, to the Christian, He's He's there and guiding us and leading us. But you can't escape from His scrutiny either. He observes all things that happen under the sun. And He knows every secret, secret compartment. And He's actively upholding the whole universe, every molecule in being. And that's why our our planets don't you know, fall out of orbit. It's not because of gravity, it's because of God, okay? It is because of gravity, but God made the gravity. Alright? Jonah knew of this omnipresence. In fact, we're going to see in Jonah chapter 2 that you guys ever watch Rain Man? Jonah's like Rain Man with the Psalms. Like, he just knows every single one of them and quotes them verbatim. And he surely would have been aware of Psalms 139, where David talks about God's omnipresence. So Jonah was aware of that. What does he mean then by escaping the presence of God? Well, I think it's escaping his intimate presence. You can think of that like in a marriage. You know, you're bound together with somebody in covenant, but there are times where you're, you're in the in a in the house with somebody and you feel miles away, right? You can be in somebody's presence and not in an intimate or personal way. Um, God is not absent even to those people in hell. And yet there's something that's lacking, right? They're, they're lacking that intimate relationship with God. They're actually lacking more than that. They're, they're, they're lacking His favorable presence. They're lacking His blessing, right? They're, they're experiencing only wrath from God. Now, this word presence, it actually in Hebrew means face. And to help understand this, this concept, for a second here, just close your eyes and think about somebody you love and care about. All right, you can open your eyes. What was the image that came to your mind? Was it that person's elbow? Or did you think about their kneecap? Or their left foot? Maybe if they had a you know, snaggle toe. I don't know. But, you know, this is... A, <laughs> you think of their face, right? This is somebody you love and care about. And the, the idea of the face is, is this is the symbolic of that person this is their the, the how we know them and, and when we think of their face all those feelings and affections we have for that person well up inside of us right so that we understand by their face 
this person. We look into their eyes, you know. We can understand something of what that means. And so, that face is the most personal aspect of a person. Which, I, uh, just a kind of a side point, I think is interesting to note. I, I think that the covering of the face with these masks was really destructive to a lot of people psychologically, um, especially kids, two years going around without seeing each other's faces. How, what did that do to people? Yeah, it did, dehumanized, right. All right, so we're going to get into this a little bit. Um, In chapter 1, we see this blatant defiance of Jonah, and he's fleeing like a fugitive from God. He wants to get as far away as he can and start his life all over in a new place called Tarshish. So, in your outline, Jonah runs from the mission that God called him to. He's actually running from the Lord. And I want us to cue into that, first of all, that Jonah uses the word Lord here to speak of Yah, the the covenant God of Israel. That's prominent here in the book of Jonah. He doesn't speak about God in kind of general terms, um, which is not wrong to, but he's pointing to the fact that this is the covenant God of Israel. In verse 3, But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is getting as far away from God as possible, as though it were possible. And it says that he found the ship. Um, it doesn't seem that he has any particular place in mind. He just is trying to escape God. Uh, Char- Let's find a place on the map. Tarshish, that's far. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to head that direction. There's no indication of why he chose Tarshish. Uh, Matthew Henry says this. Some think Jonah went upon the opinion of some of the Jews that the spirit of prophecy was confined to the land of Israel. And therefore, he hoped he should get clear of it if he could get out of the border of the land. Then God had made his, his, uh, had kind of claimed that land special and unique, right? And there was the temple, and um, you were to go to the temple for prayer and fellowship with God. So we went to Tarshish. Tarshish, um, Tarsh. It's probably Tarsus of Cilicia, which is is west, instead of the mission that God called him to in Nineveh, which was east. It's actually about 2,500 miles west of where Jonah lived in Gathifer of Israel. But he went first to this port city, Joppa, which is a significant place in uh, which is a significant city in the book of Acts. This is about 200 miles southwest of, of uh, Gath-Hefer, where Jonah's from. And some people see Jonah as kind of the Old Testament equivalent of the book of Acts, because they pick up on a lot of the parallels that, that happen in the book of Jonah and the book of Acts. Um, Joppa is a significant city in the book of Acts. 
Joppa is, is kind of is a natural harbor, and so people would come from all over the place to this harbor where they would set sail on ships. And then it tended to attract a lot of the Gentiles. Um, and it had this natural harbor. Apparently it had this semi-circular reef that allowed for the break, the, to, um, you know, a calm ocean and, and, and kept back the breakwaters. And I, apparently it was very shallow, so only small boats could get in to this harbor. And it was kind of treacherous to, to try to navigate your way in. But in Acts chapter 9, Peter, if you remember, he actually raises a girl from the dead in Joppa. And then in Acts chapter 10, Peter is given a vision. The sheet comes down from heaven, and there's unclean animals, and he's told to eat. And this... Um, the message that God was communicating to, to him, to him, in that is that all He declared all things clean, all foods clean, and by it He was to learn that the Gentiles were clean, the Gentiles were made clean, that they were. It was now time for Him to go out and give them the gospel message as well. So, um, I see a lot of these parallels. These scholars actually note that. Jonah is actually a master masterpiece of literature, and in, if, if, the more you look into this, the, the deeper it goes. This is a, one of the parallels here. It says that he paid the fare, that he paid the fare, he paid the toll price to, to go on this ship, which I think is significant. Jonah wasn't passive about his disobedience. He didn't stay in Gath Hefer and just decline. He didn't declined going up to Nineveh. He actually, <laughs> this was costly to him. It's, he spent time and forethought into his disobedience. And he actually had to sell off perhaps his property and tap into his 401k to fund this big trip 2,500 miles away on a, on a ship. And there doesn't seem to be any evidence that he was coming back. So he paid the fare for his disobedience Jonah seems, in my mind, to be done with God. It's not that he just had a bad day here. Like Jonah is like decisively determined that he is going to walk away from God. And so Jonah runs from the Lord. Second, Jonah, or the Lord pursues Jonah. So Jonah thought that he could escape from God, but God wasn't done with Jonah, and God pursues him and brought him under conviction. Notice the back and forth here. It says, God had called him to arise and go to Nineveh, but, but Jonah rose and he went down to Joppa, right? And then, but God, in verse 4, but God, and there's this back and forth, and at the end of the day, God always wins, right? Verse 4, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. A furious storm, a mighty storm, swept across the sea and blasted at the sails of the ship, and the waves beat against the hull of the ship, so that they thought it was going to be broken up. God, it says he, it says he sent it out, 
And the word here in Hebrew used is the same word used to describe what Saul did when he slung a spear at David. He literally just just chucked it at him. And the picture is God literally takes a wind and just chucks it at Jonah. Like a like a pitcher throwing a baseball. Verse 5. And then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest part of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. This, this story drips with irony. Notice the contrast here between this pagan mariner, this crusty old fisherman, captain of his boat, and Jonah, who's the prophet and priest of God. And here he is, fast asleep and down in the bowels of the ship as the ship's about to sink. The prophet of Yah sleeps. Mariners, who are these mariners? The word actually uh, signifies they're salters. They're salty people. They're fishermen, right? They live in the, in the sea, in the, in the salt waters. These guys were experienced fishermen, and they had seen many storms before, and they were able to keep their composure under, under very turbulent conditions, but not here, not this storm. They, they lost all composure in this moment, and they began screaming and yelling in terror because they knew that if this storm kept blasting at their ships, it was going to tear the whole thing to pieces, and they were going to sink into the ocean. And so we see the, these mariners, and they're crying every man out to his God, it says. Unless gods, the gods save us, they're not monotheists, but unless the gods save us, we are doomed. Interesting to note, the, the paganism of these men allowed them to cry out to the gods. Right? Now, you can imagine who would be on this ship, this port city. Um, people from all surrounding nations would have come and would have been on this boat. So there would have been each of them, most likely polytheistic, they would have had each person dozens of gods. Collectively, this would have been perhaps hundreds of gods that they're calling out to, and they're just going down the line. Which one is the god of the sea that's actually going to take care of this storm, Right? Now we don't um, um, we don't endorse their paganism. We don't endorse their polytheism. But I think it's noteworthy that these guys weren't atheists, right? Yeah, I, I find that kind of fascinating. Uh, all men know by light of creation that there has to be a god. And these guys, <laughs> in their desperate condition, they're like they 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 turn to God or they turn to the gods. And it says that they cast their wares. They, they literally started dumping all the supplies overboard to lighten up the load of this ship. This would have been merchandise, perhaps. It could have been weapons, you know, for protection. It could have been food. Who knows what they had. But they, they, put, they dumped over enough stuff 
that that actually lightened the load of a ship, which would have been a substantial amount of belongings, right? They were in a desperate state here. Extremely costly to them to do such an act. And yet Jonah fast asleep. Jonah's fast asleep. Um, the word fast asleep uh, indicates a particularly deep kind of sleep, almost like hypnosis. You wonder how Jonah could be sleeping through all this commotion. Um, he probably didn't take a Valium. I know some people have to do that to go on the airplane or something. I, I don't think that it, Perhaps he was tired from his voyage, 200 miles from gath Kefer, you know, in a haste. He was selling his belongings and gathering up supplies for his trip, and he makes this long journey, not in an air-conditioned car, not even in a car, right? And he's, he's wiped out, perhaps. I, I tend to think, though, he was more depressed or apathetic. Seems to me... Um, he had lost a lot. Um, his golden years of retiring as a respected priest in Israel were gone. His dreams were dashed to pieces. And he's out on the run, alone, far from home, far from friends, far from family. And he sunk down into a depression. He seems to be at a spiritual low and he's sinking lower and lower and lower, spiraling down. And he's even ready to spiral down and die physically. Uh, he, he's, he's, he's ready just to die. He actually tells us that in chapter 4, verse 8. He says, death is better for me than life. That's where he's at. And so anyway, he's asleep spiritually as well as asleep physically here. That's the condition of him. Verse 6, And so the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Again, notice the irony here. God sends the preacher to preach a sermon to the preacher. Jonah, he's supposed to be the preacher. This captain comes. What are you doing down here, Jonah? Notice that the, the captain came to him, and it really should have been the other way around. Jonah, he knows the solution to all their problems. Jonah, um, he should be going to the mariner. He should the mariners. He should be going to this captain himself and telling him he knows the Lord. These women and, and men, they're all desperate. They're dumping their things over, over the side of the ship. Blue um, Bible Knowledge Commentary makes this note. What an object lesson to God's people to awaken from their apathy as a crying people perish on the sea of life. That's good, huh? What an object lesson to God's people to awaken from their ap apathy as a crying people perish on the sea of life. That's good. He says, arise. Notice his message here. The captain says, arise, Jonah. It's as if he's God's megaphone. This captain is, is God's mouthpiece to Jonah. 
He's speaking almost prophetically to Jonah. Remember what Jonah, what God said to Jonah in verse 2. Arise, Jonah. Flee. Uh, or arise, go to Nineveh. And here um, the captain is saying, Arise, Jonah. He's like a prophet of God and he's, he's haunting Jonah with a reminder of the commission and calling that he was formerly called to. What are you doing down here at the bottom of the ships? God had called you to go east, and you're heading west. Arise, Jonah. Go back on the calling that you were called to. Verse 7, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. God here, I think, recommissions Jonah by the casting of lots, which is interesting to me. Um, it's kind of like pulling a name out of a hat, but back then they didn't have paper and pencils and could tear off little pieces and drop it in a hat. But they were trying to figure out who was the cause of this disaster that came upon them. So they had lot casting. Some think they would draw straw out um, out of a bag of some sort, maybe whoever got the short straw, um, or perhaps it was different colored rocks. A black rock meant, no, that's not your guy. A white one said, yes, that's your guy. Some people think it was beans, whatever it happened to be. But I want us to think about this idea of, of lot casting for a second because um, I think we should be careful not to think about this the wrong way. Did, did the lot choose Jonah? N no. Is there a force out there named Lot that has a will and has a, a purpose and, and, a, and is a force that, that determines the fate of things? No. No, no, no such thing exists. In our day, though, is there is there such a thing as chance? Not as a force, not as a mind, not as a will that can determine the outcome of things, right? And we can speak of chance, I think, in a in a mathematical probability kind of way, where we're seeing you see that there's two um, what seems from from our perspective two unrelated events that coalesce in time, right? That's what we mean by chance. By chance, I happened to see my neighbor Bill in Tahoe. Well, I didn't see that coming, right? There was all these things that led up to him coming there and me coming there. But we don't think that chance caused Bill to go to Tahoe and caused me to go to Tahoe, right? That's not what we mean by it. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. So these guys were rolling the dice, but God made it land, right? God is the, the sometimes not the immediate cause, but he is, he's the first cause, uncause, and he ordains the, the series and chain of events so that they coalesce in time. All right, we don't believe in chance. That's my point here. We don't believe that lot casting has any power. God chose Jonah. And it was no coincidence that the lot had landed on Jonah. 
Verse 8. Then they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Talk about an embarrassing situation. Jonah is pulled up from the bow of the ship. God shines the heat lamp on him, and now he's being interrogated by everybody who's watching on the ship. And his, his, uh, he just kind of wants to be left alone. He was down asleep in the, amongst the luggage. And here he is being brought up to be interrogated And as he answers these questions, it would have caused the people to gasp. (laughs) What? You're a prophet? Don't you see we are looking for answers, Jonah? Come on, preach a sermon to us. What is happening here? In your occupation, you're a... Wait a minute, you're a priest? Dude, we, if ever there was a time that we needed some prayer, it is right now. Please help us, man. Intercede for us. <laughs> Verse 9, And so he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. (laughs) Now, Jonah was kind of a reluctant preacher here. And... um, he didn't he didn't hit a home run here, but I do think he got the gospel message uh, across. This is a golden opportunity, you know. Um, they want to know who he is, what does he do as an occupation? Oh, you're a you're a Hebrew. Tell us about the one and true and only living God. <laughs> he is a he is a he's been lobbed a softball to hit a gospel grand slam, <laughs> but I, I think he he kind of at least gets a base hit here. Um, he says, I am a Jew and I worship that one and only true God who made the wind, who made the seas, who made the earth and everything that exists. Right? He's, he's, he's pointing out the fact that these pagans worshipped, you know, the God of fertility, there's the God of rain, there's the God of the ocean, there's the God of the land, the God of the stars, and so and so, and they had, you know, a pantheon of gods. But, Jonah says, no, there's actually just one God who created all things. We Hebrews, we worship that God. There is only one God. And God is holy, and he judges evil. And look, I ran from God, and that's why you are experiencing this trouble. And by the way, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, By implication, they understood God's wrath. And they, they were experiencing this storm because of Jonah's disobedience. But he says this, throw me overboard. Throw me overboard. 
sacrifice me, which points forward, I think, in some sense, to the sacrifice that was made by Jesus Christ when he was thrown overboard into the sea of death. Um, I don't know that Jonah fully explained all the details of this, but um, we learn a principle from this. The one man sacrificed for the many. Jonah would give his life that the whole sea vessel full of people here would be saved. Up to this point, Jonah is a complete failure, yet God is still using him to reach the, these, the lost people on this ship. And although they, he may not explicitly be teaching them the gospel, conceptually he is. Conceptually they're understanding this principle of one man sacrificing for the many. But how do men respond when they first hear the gospel? that a man can do nothing to save himself, but must rely upon the sacrifice of, of another. That one man must give their life. Notice what they do in verse 13. Nevertheless, nevertheless the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Notice they, they don't like the message at first. They're like, we're not going to throw, we're not going to kill an innocent man. People don't typically receive the message at first when they hear it. Notice these men rode harder. This is a picture of the unbelieving world desperately trying to save themselves. Men in their pride, they re when they hear the gospel message, it's actually a hard pill to swallow. You mean I can do nothing to save myself? Come on. I'm not that bad, am I? That another person actually has to die to take my place? No, 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 no. No, I can, I can do this. I just need to try harder. I need to get in my, my ship and start rowing. And so what do they do? They, they row, they strive harder, and they say, my good outweighs my bad. I can, I can do this, Lord. Notice in verse 14, Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. These mariners um, among people, although they, like all men, had sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they were actually pretty good people. Um, you ever watch those fishing shows? These these sailors are often um, um, pretty crude and <laughs> they have foul potty mouths, right? But uh, they're not typically thought as the most upstanding citizens. But now these were these were just good good guys. They're like, oh, we're not going to kill an innocent man. We're not going to do that. They were, even to spare the whole ship, they'd rather sink with the ship. Right? These were pretty good guys. But they were confronted with a message from a prophet. This shows that they actually believed that Jonah 
was truly a messenger from God, that Jonah had truly was a prophet of God. And Jonah had told them to, be, to throw him overboard. God actually has the right to give and take life. And when God had called um, these mariners through the, through the mouth of Jonah, they said, throw me overboard. God was in, in that actually giving them permission to do this very thing for the saving of the people. Verse 15. And so they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. Again, the irony here, that the priest who had made thousands and thousands of sacrifices in Israel himself becomes the sacrifice. I think Jonah here is kind of an Old Testament gospel track, giving us a picture of salvation. Jonah is a, a, would you call a type of Christ. He's giving us a picture of the sacrifice that Christ had made to save the whole world. An illustration of sacrifice, an illustration of substitution, an illustration of salvation through one man. It's not a perfect illustration. It's not a perfect picture. But conceptually, there was components that people could understand this gospel of God's way of salvation through the sacrifice. And these men were humbled by the storm. It says, verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. They were humbled by God who had sent this storm. Notice they, they, kinda, they came to their wits' end and they realized all of their striving was in vain and all of their striving was against God. And they accepted the one way of sacrifice, the provision that God had made. And realizing how desperate their condition by faith, they threw Jonah overboard. It's a picture of what happens when you and I believe the gospel. We throw Christ overboard. That he might experience the wrath for us. That we could be free from the wrath of God and go free. Notice these men, they feared the Lord. I actually believe that at least some of these guys were saved that day. They no longer feared the storm. They no longer feared the ship being busted to pieces. They no longer feared uh, sinking and dying. They feared the Lord. Seems to indicate that they truly trusted and believed in the God of Israel and were saved. Notice also it said that they sacrificed and they made vows. Right then and there, they, they probably went into the cargo and found that there was livestock and they pulled out a goat or a sheep and they slit its throat. And by that, they, they understood the principle of sacrifice. They understood God's way of salvation through sacrifice. But what a surprising turn of, event, of events. Um, who would have guessed that God would save these people at this time by this guy, Jonah, the most miserable missionary. 
I'm going to conclude here, but how, how about you? Are you striving against perhaps even this message this morning? Are you in your little spiritual boat rowing with oars and think that you got this? Are you still striving against the Lord and thinking that you could merit salvation by trusting in your good works? Have you understood your desperate need? So desperate that another person would have to die for you. And not just any person, right? I mean, the the the, the picture we get of Jonah breaks down because Jonah was... You know, he was like us, but he was <laughs> he wasn't a great example, right? But Jesus Christ, the blessed Son of God, God's beloved Son, begotten from the Father from all eternity, took on flesh to become a man and provide the sacrifice we need to save our souls. Do you recognize what it took for God to save you? And have you ceased striving and laid it all before Jesus and asked Him to be your Lord and Savior? If you haven't, I, I pray that you would cease striving today and put your, your trust and hope in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. Just by acknowledging your sin and confessing it and asking that God would apply the sacrifice of Christ to your account. It's really that simple by faith. Well, I'm excited to get through uh, the rest of this book. It's It's got just these wonderful pictures of the gospel. And um, hopefully, hopefully you're able to see some of these things here. Let's pray. Lord, God above, I thank you that Lord, as we were in such a desperate and lowly state, you looked down upon us, God, and you provided the, the way of salvation, the sacrifice through one man, the perfect and blessed holy Son of God, the perfect Lamb of God, takes away the sins of the world. Thank you for this, this great gospel, Lord. We praise you and we worship you. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.